This B-Podcast Network show is presented by IXL. Loved and trusted by more than 1 million teachers, IXL enhances your teaching and takes work off your plate so you can make an even bigger impact on your students. IXL delivers personalized learning across a comprehensive pre-K-12 curriculum, including math, language arts, science, and social studies, and helps you assess student performance through actionable, real-time insights. Strengthen daily instruction, close knowledge gaps quickly, and set every student up for success. Want to bring IXL to your school? Learn more at IXL.com B-E. That's IXL.com B-E. We are proud to partner with MyFlex Learning. MyFlex Learning is a scheduling platform that helps middle and high schools meet the individual needs of all students. Students can easily create and manage time for flex blocks, wind time, activity periods, RTI, counselor and teacher appointments, and so much more. Even my favorite, Synergy Time. And with its built-in accountability tool and reporting features, my flex learning solves your challenges around getting kids where they need to be and understanding how flex time is spent. Make flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com slash B-E. Welcome to the Cybertraps Podcast. I'm Jethro Jones coming to you from Washington, host of the podcast, Transformative Principal and author of the book, School X, How to Redesign Your School for the People Right in Front of You. I am a former principal at all levels of K-12 education. Good morning, good afternoon, everyone. I'm Frederick Lane, an author, attorney, educational consultant based in Brooklyn, New York. I'm the author of 10 books, including most recently, Cybertraps for Educators 2.0, Raising Cyberethical Kits, and Cybertraps for Expecting Moms and Dads. Jethro and I have teamed up on 98 podcasts to bring useful, timely, and entertaining information to teachers, parents, and others about the risks arising from misuse of digital devices. Over the coming weeks and months, we'll continue talking to some of the world's leading experts in the fields of education, parenting, sociology, and cyber safety. Join us as we look at what it takes to better navigate our increasingly high-tech world. For more information or to donate to our work, please visit centerforcyberethics.org. And if you choose to donate there, you will be supporting the Cybertraps podcast as a production of the Center for Cyber Ethics, which is an independent, nonpartisan educational institute dedicated to the study and promotion of cyber ethics as a positive social force in research, curricula development, publishing and media, professional training, and public advocacy. Greetings there, Jethro. Well, it is morning here on the west side of the United States, so good morning to you, and <laughs> even though you're just barely in the afternoon. Well, it's all good. Doesn't much matter. We're here talking. So <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yeah. Excellent. So today's topic, we're going to, I uh, think, give schools across the country a little bit of good news in terms of one of the provisions of the recent infrastructure bill. Uh, that will be very helpful in terms of, of improving school cybersecurity. And we've talked about cybersecurity issues in the past with a variety of different school guests. And uh, just flipped through our uh, list of guests to get a sense of who they are. 
But um, we want to talk about that. We want to talk about what kind of money is available, how it's going to be used, and also tie it into some other K-12 cybersecurity initiatives that are underway. Yeah. I mean, this is an episode talking about how to get free money for your school district. So definitely a shareable <laughs> one, definitely one you want to pay attention to. And anytime you can get free money for school, then that is great. So uh, definitely worth checking out. So this is a... Uh, a one a a one billion dollar Department of Homeland Cybersecurity grant program. Now, is all that money going to schools, or is it divided up amongst a bunch of people who are contesting for it? Well, everybody's contesting for the money <laughs> at the infrastructure bill, so let's not have any illusions about that. But this particular pot of one billion dollars is going to augment. To be fair a number of existing grant programs that the Department of Homeland Security has. But this pot of money is specifically designed to flow downstream to state departments of education and through them to local school districts. So that it's a very targeted grant. And I think it offers a real opportunity for schools recording in progress to step up their game and to um make sure that they have the appropriate best practices in place in order to get their school safe. Yeah. And that makes a lot of sense. And that seems like something that is definitely needed to happen. So let's talk a little bit about what, why this is important now, as if people need more reminders, but um, you know, we'll start with the end in mind with the idea of zoom bombing that um, I think that's where people really saw that schools did not have a cybersecurity focus. And it was a, a real challenge when the pandemic hit and everybody went to remote. And then you had all these people jumping on these Zoom meetings doing inappropriate and showing inappropriate things, doing inappropriate things. And <laughs> it, was a, it was a real wake-up call to a lot of schools and a lot of um, institutions that were not prepared for that. Oh, that's absolutely true, Jethro. And it's a really, really good point. I mean, I think with respect to uh, 2020, Zoom bombing was obviously the catchy title, right? This idea that people could hijack the Zoom transmission in some way, or they could creep into a Zoom meeting like the one you and I are having right now and display whatever they wanted. And this is actually a really good illustration of how the pandemic caught everybody off guard mm -hmm. because what Zoom learned very quickly, the minute it had tens or hundreds of thousands of students accessing its surface, is that its security, Zoom's own security, was not that hot. So, you know, in collaboration with the schools, this really wasn't all the school's fault. Uh, Zoom had some responsibility for this too. But Zoom had to step in and actually augment its security to make it harder for people to do that. So that was that. I mean, Zoom bombing has largely died away, um, although it is the kind of thing that gets a lot of headlines and gets people thinking about this. But the ongoing persistent threat that schools absolutely need to be aware of is the ransomware. And this is certainly something we've talked about. Yeah, and, and the ransomware piece is, is really, um, I think, frightening for schools because they would have no idea how to manage that once it happened because it's something sure. that they just don't 
they just hadn't thought about you know five years ago maybe a few had here and there but overall this was not something that we thought or talked about and the violations of student privacy through the federal uh the FERPA which I forgot what it stands family for. education Thank records you. protection act yeah I I said federal and then I knew that was wrong and then I couldn't get back on track yeah so FERPA makes it so that um, that disclosing that information is is really a, a bad thing to do, and right. and then when you think about somebody stealing all of that data, uh, the retention requirements for schools to keep that stuff in place for so long is mm-hmm. just ridiculous. Some records you have to keep until a hundred years after the person has graduated from school. Can you believe You're that? You're kidding. No. I actually did not know that. You're yeah. kidding. <laughs> so you have to so keep. So what kinds of things? Like your gym attendance? and <laughs> Yeah. Really, that comes down to transcripts so that people can go back and get the transcripts. But to keep records yeah. for a hundred years after somebody graduates is is a long, long time. And that's. Wow. That's, that's crazy. That's a lot to keep track of. So if you have a ransomware you're required by law to keep those things, but then you're also required by just decency of being making things accessible to your students. You know, if somebody requests a high school transcript when they're 50 years old, you have to maintain access to that. And a lot of those things are digitized now, but there are some that are still in paper and you can't really hack into and steal the paper copies, but you can the digital copies. And as school districts are putting these things in place, a lot of them did not put their necessary requirements or the necessary uh, systems in place to prevent them from being hacked or stolen or leaked online. And and that sets them up for a really bad uh, situation for sure. And that's precisely why the federal government has been paying so much attention to this. And um, just so people are fully informed on the kinds of things that you and I are keeping an eye on, it's not just the $1 billion grant program, which is obviously a huge thing because that's actionable money that people can take out and try to improve what they're doing in schools. But people should also be aware that the Department of Homeland Security has what they call an operational division uh, called the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, uh, better known by its acronym CISA, L-S-C-I-S-A. And that division of Homeland Security is responsible for creating and making available to the public all kinds of cybersecurity resources. And in October, President Biden signed into place uh, the K-12 Cybersecurity Act, which requires CISA to go even deeper on this topic. And over the next several months, basically about a half a year, they're going to be doing in-depth analysis of the threats to K-12 schools and then issuing a report that hopefully will provide good guidance to IT departments on what kinds of grants they should be applying for and where they should be spending the money. So when you combine these two pieces of legislation, basically what you're getting to is a situation where the government is trying to raise all school districts to a baseline of cybersecurity. So certain practices like multi-factor authentication would be one thing, uh, putting in place uh, regulations that limit the number of people who have privileged access to the networks that the schools use. Because, you know, obviously one of the real threats is that if a hacker gets in, 
which could be, you know, your average 12 year old or could be a malicious actor from overseas. The key thing that they're looking for is this thing called root access, which is, you know, sort of super administrator access to the entire network system. And what makes that so profoundly dangerous is that a super administrator can create backdoors, which can be utilized at a later time. So one of the ways people get access to that are these phishing attacks that we've talked about. Um, the other way that uh, often pops up is a failure to patch software, which actually I was just doing before I logged on to our call <laughs> this morning, um, trying to follow my own advice about keeping Windows up to date. But if you leave these holes and someone gets in there and they're able to establish root access to the network, then all bets are off in terms of what information they can get access to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and you mentioned that sometimes it's your average 12-year-old who's hacking into the system, and kids are absolutely curious about what's going on, and they don't like that things are blocked at school, so they try to find ways to get around that all the time. And that is just a part of life. And so you have constant attacks from kids who are just trying to use the internet at school to do different things, um, not to mention using things like AirDrop on Apple devices or text messages um, to to access different things in different ways. I mean, kids are very much aware of what's going on. So schools have that front to constantly be aware of. There's always penetration testing going on, not in the most... Uh, um, most correct way to do it, but kids are always, <laughs> always trying to find those, those back doors themselves. So, you know, so that, that creates an opportunity there for, for schools to pay attention to that, which I think schools have been aware of for a long time. Um, but then you bring up these state actors, uh, from other countries or even people within our own country trying to get access to what we have. The, the list goes on and on of, of ways they can get in and what they can do. And, and this is where one aspect of this is using a single sign-on provider, which a lot of schools use because there are so many different tools and resources out there that having to remember passwords for all those, I mean, you should already be using a password manager, but then having to, having to do that for your professional life can sometimes be challenging or for students to remember all those different passwords. So the default in schools is to make the passwords super simple that kids can remember. But then you have a challenge of if it's so simple for a kid to remember, then and somebody else can can break in. And we've had several issues when I was a principal of kids guessing other students' default passwords and being able mm-hmm. to access their stuff from from a different account. And there was one incident where we had a a student who um, who had been logging into a computer and this actually was widespread throughout the district um that our amazing sleuthy librarian figured out which was so cool (laughs) kids were guessing other student student numbers and then logging into their machines from those student numbers so one of our students at our school was logging into a device that was owned by the high school that was all the way on the other side of town that this student would never end up going to and Amazing. but it was checked out to to that school. So anyway, these kids were just guessing what it was and were able to log in. And then we there was no way for us to identify 
who was actually using the sure. device right. because somebody else was logged into it. So a kid in middle school was getting blamed for basically stealing a, a laptop from a high school that the kid had never had any exposure to. And, uh, you know, these kinds of things happen all the time. And if you're not being security conscience, conscious, you're going to uh, have those things continue to happen. And there, right. there are ways to get around that, but it, you've got to pay attention and think about it. And this grant is designed to help you put some of those things into place so that that kind of stuff doesn't happen. See, I think that's such a great example because that's a relatively benign intrusion. Right. Right. I mean, it, it, it's annoying and it kind of puts the kid in bad light, but, but, you know, no profound harm really occurred from it. But if you're using this, you know, password hygiene, God, how many times do we talk about password yeah, hygiene yeah. as part of this whole issue? But if you put into place a predictable scheme for providing default passwords, you know, the thing about kids, what makes them such great stress testers? <laughs> yeah, parents will love that phrase. But for school IT departments, you know, they have time, they have curiosity, they have motivation, and they have technical skills. And so that was a powerful combination of factors, you know, to bring to the table when they're trying to do something they shouldn't be doing. And yeah. You know, in many cases, they're just trying to do pranks. They're just trying to figure out what they can get away with, that kind of thing. But the more profound issue is the bad actors, right? Mm -hmm. Who have all of those same criteria, but have the additional motivation of wanting to commit identity theft or hold a school ransom for the data that they need in order to function. And that's why this is so critical. Well, and, and that's exactly the point of that story is that if, if kids in your district can figure out what your sequence is, what your, what your naming sequence is and how to you're log not into doing things, it right. <laughs> you're definitely not doing it right. And so if, if somebody can, can from the outside get enough information to figure that out, um, and one, one good way to see if it's happening is if it's happening inside your district already. You know, right. and right. so you need to be aware that if it's happening inside the district, then it's it's very easy for someone outside the district who can actually, you know, write scripts to to automate that process. Mm -hmm. They can sure. figure out how to do it, too. And it's just a matter of time before it ends up happening. And right. and, and, you need and to of course, they, they, they're going to be trying to compromise someone a little higher food chain, mm -hmm. you know, with, you know. Let's say an IT guy has been temporarily given administrative access and he's got a weak password. Boom, there you go. So that becomes your issue. Let me ask you this, though, as, as a former principal, how often would you say that you met with your IT department? Just when we need to buy technology, usually. Uh, yeah. I mean, that's really what it comes down to. And unfortunately, um, that was the case for most of my career. Uh, but because mm -hmm. I'm a nerd and pay attention to these things, we <laughs> we started meeting with them more often. Now, here's the other challenge. The other real challenge is that you want to be agile and adopt new tools as they become available and use different tools that will help you be successful in teaching kids. And mm -hmm. that's not good from an IT perspective for people to be able to just use whatever they want. So what ends up happening is that you either as a teacher or a principal, you either use things without permission and without the support from the IT department, or mm -hmm. 
you don't get to use them or you go through a very long process to be able to use them and it's not really at the, by the time you finally do it the year is mostly done and you just figured out a different way to do it anyway so sure. the the yeah. those situations and i think that this is where it's really important to have open and ongoing communication about what you can and can't do and uh, many teachers and principals have just taken the approach of it's easier to ask for forgiveness than for permission and and so they just use whatever tools they feel like they need to use and part of that challenge is that ed tech companies give free accounts to teachers so that teachers can go start using them and then they go and start hassling the district for it later and and a lot of that is not set up in a healthy way for anybody it's not good for it department it's not good for the teachers and it's not good for the ed tech companies and those those are all big challenges i mean we should probably have a whole episode about that in the future we should put that on our on our list of future episodes I absolutely agree. I think that's a fabulous topic to cover. Look, I mean, the reality is, and every IT and every cybersecurity specialist will tell you this, is that security is friction, right? Mm -hmm. It increases the friction, whatever system you're using. And what's one of the most common byproducts of friction? Heat and anger and frustration. (laughs) (laughs) And so the upshot of it is that people want to minimize friction. They want things to go smoothly. We could, we can't say it enough how challenging teaching is these days, especially. It's always been challenging, but you know, in the last 18 months to two years, it's been brutal. And so, you know, teachers are naturally looking for things that will make their jobs easier. But I think part of the point of this particular episode of the Cybertraps Fight Guest is to remind people that the thing you might be asking forgiveness for is locking out your entire school from their data or the loss of confidential identifying information of Mm -hmm. your students. So yes, it's okay to ask forgiveness if maybe you crash a couple of desktops. That's fine. It's an entirely different thing to to ask forgiveness for what is basically a federal crime. So yeah, that's the kind of conversation people need to have. Well, and and it's it's easy to go to that extreme, right? Sure. Of of this is what could happen, but it's also not too far fetched to say that that's what could happen. Yeah. Yeah. Now, I can yeah. envision a very savvy um, uh, phishing or other cyber attack where they actually create a site for people to use and get teachers mm-hmm. to sign up to it. And the sole purpose of it is to gain access to the infrastructure. And the challenge with that, uh, and that I don't think is too far-fetched if you want to target schools. And there was a few years ago, there was a, I think we've talked about it here, there was a an accessibility um, issue with uh, websites being accessible. And school districts got targeted by a lawyer sending out these, we're suing you for violating the... Um, disability act by not making your site accessible and there were many changes that had to be implemented very quickly otherwise school districts would have to pay tens of thousands of dollars for violating this and it was it was legal but it was an abuse like the patent troll system that exists where people file frivolous patent lawsuits and and that's exactly what was happening and our district got targeted with that and and we had to make these 
enormous changes to our website essentially overnight to comply or pay, you know, thousands of dollars in fines for for something that, you know, nobody even really cares about the school website. <laughs> but yeah, look, I, I I have a couple of friends who work in intellectual property law. Patent troll things is a huge issue, mm-hmm. you know, because it's very very difficult to combat. And you keep waiting for Congress to step in and clean it up at some point. That doesn't happen. I'm not surprised. I don't think we've actually discussed that. That might be an interesting thing to follow up on as well. I think for the purposes of the um, chat we're having today. I think it's worthwhile just to mention a couple of other cybersecurity threats that people should really be aware of. And then we've got some tips, basically, that school districts should consider, you know, in terms of dealing with this, even before the Department of Homeland Security drops a big bag of cash. Yeah. And and we're definitely not going to get through all of these. And there are so many resources at cybertraps.com slash 98 this episode that you can check out and and learn more about and understand what's going on. It is really Fred's done an amazing job of putting together some great resources. So we're not going to get to it all. So make sure you go check out cybertraps.com to, yeah, to get absolutely. more of that. I, Jethro, I think that's a great pointer. Um, yeah. Some of these things that you will see in the show resources are deep in the geek weeds. And mm-hmm. so I'm more than happy to chat offline with people about them. I am fascinated about this stuff, but a couple of things just to remind people, one of the reasons that we want people to develop what we call a culture of cyber safety within the schools is to be aware of the potential, for instance, of downloading malware. Uh, which could be viruses, which could be worms of one kind, um, and of course, ransomware. And the issue there, of course, is that if you're going to dodgy websites or if you're getting these free educator resources handed to you, one of the reasons you might want to think about doing that is you don't necessarily know if there's other code wrapped around the software, uh, buried in a website, something like that. And you could be creating vulnerability within your school district system. So there's that. I think there's always good work to be done on educating people about phishing techniques. The sophistication that some of these emails demonstrate is scary. You know, they will, they will absolutely convince you that it's coming from a legitimate source and just enter your information to confirm mm-hmm. that you know, the information is correct. I must get like a handful of those from my mother-in-law every week because, you know, they also target the elderly quite a bit. Um, So I think those are really the highlights in terms of the risk. That's probably about 80% of the ongoing threats to schools, roughly. Uh, But there are some other really interesting, very specialized attacks that you may want to review at some point in our show notes. Yeah, I think one that I would bring up is a drive-by download that um, I think is very common for the kinds of things that kids are interested in. So pirated games, movies, music, all that kind of stuff. You can get downloads that you're not anticipating where something, you know, you're trying to get one thing and something else is downloaded at the same time. And that's that's an idea, especially for schools where where that kind of stuff... um, you know, the, the thing with kids is that they they don't have money 
And so they can't go buy the stuff appropriately. Right. And so they still want to be involved in it, but they don't know how to do it um, and, and have money to do it. So that, that makes it challenging. So then they go look for these other things and they, and they get there. And, and that is something that you, you know, even as, as an adult, you can easily find, you know, a free teacher resource on some spammy website that you don't necessarily know is spammy. And, and then you, you know, you're downloading stuff on your computer and you've got a virus and, and you have no idea where it came from because you're just downloading a ton of worksheets to give to your kids, which is all well and fine, but, but you're not paying attention to where they're coming mm-hmm. from. Right. And then you wind up basically with a block of frozen silicon. That's computer. right. <laughs> and that's so, yeah, I mean, let's, let's just be real about this. It is true that, you know, it can be frustrating. And it can be expensive even sometimes to get the appropriate resources, but in a very real sense, you get what you pay for. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, you know, one of the science fiction writers I really enjoyed when I was a kid, uh, Robert Heinlein, had this great acronym, TONSTAL. Great uh-huh. thing, no such thing as a free lunch. <laughs> yeah. So it's a good thing to keep in mind from a security perspective. Yeah, absolutely. So let's talk about some of the ideas for having better cybersecurity um, at, with, again, a reminder, there are tons of resources, including the CISA.gov website that you can check out and you can get all those links at cybertraps.com. So what are some of the, some of the tips that you would suggest? Well, the first one, Jethro, is really right up your alley. Yep. Get buy-in from top administration. So put yourself back in your days as a top administrator. What would people have to do to get buying from you to make improvements in this area? Well, you know, this, this one I think is actually more difficult than people think because you don't realize that it's important until you're behind the eight ball. And then you mm-hmm. say, we should have done something about this years ago. So, Great point. Um, so you can't really, I mean, you could just go in and say, here's all the bad stuff that could happen. And then people also write you off because it's not actually happening. So I think going in with clear, hard data about what is actually happening on your network at the time. So if you say we have, we have had over the past week, this number of intrusions that have been attempting to infiltrate our network. And this is what we've done to stop them. Now, those kinds of things happen all the time. There's bots, there's scripts that are going on that, you know, people Mm -hmm. go to websites and then that says, you know, go attack this IP address, all those things happen. And so knowing what's actually going on is important. Knowing what's already there and then knowing what the next step is, not the five years down the line, here's all the things we have in place. But the next thing we need to do is we need to have a different password naming scheme for our new devices. And Mm -hmm. I'm telling you as the administ- as the top administrator because you need to know that this is what we're going to do. It might cause some some ruffled feathers here and there, but this is a simple step that we can do. So instead of saying here's all the things we need to implement, talk about the very next thing it needs to be implemented as it's actually not that big a deal. It's a small step in the right direction and we'll just keep on doing those small steps. So that so that it doesn't sound like our most important thing in school is keeping our infrastructure, our IT infrastructure free of anything. Because then, again, as I've said numerous times, 
as long as the point, the priority in schools is not learning, then it's something else and it can never be learning again. So you can't make <laughs> IT security the number one priority for the school district. Learning has to remain that. But part of that is saying, in order to keep our kids learning, we need to have these structures, these protections in place. Well, right. And I, I think that the big linkage immediately is if our school computer system is shut down, it's going to have a discernible impact on our ability to teach kids. Yeah. So there's a direct connection there. Look, I think one of the real challenges is that human beings are, I think, innately reluctant to put resources into preventing something negative from happening because what's success? The bad thing doesn't happen. So it feels like nothing is being achieved in a way. Whereas we're much better at spending money on something that exists, you know, something we can see that's tangible, like books or computers or what have you. But the idea of putting resources into not having a hack right. is, is kind of a, a more difficult sell. Yeah. And I could and, see, yeah. And, and this is where things like um, school safety issues, uh, practicing fire drills and uh, mm, active shooter things, point. all those things, the the good outcome is that the thing doesn't happen. And so yesterday in church, actually, we had somebody said the point of their talk was don't ignore the warning signs. And I think that that's a good idea in general. But I, I took a note as after this woman said this, and I said, unfortunately, we are now at a time where these warnings that are given are driven by fears of liability and loss rather than based on what's actually happening. So it makes it challenging to heed the warnings because they're based on the worst possible scenarios, not what is likely to happen. So the challenge is if you say, here are all the bad things that could possibly ever happen, you mm -hmm. lose interest because everybody thinks those things aren't going to happen to us. And we still have to increase our security. We still have to increase our safety. We still have to do the right things. But if we act like everything is going to go to hell in a handbasket, if we don't do this one little thing, it, it's fatiguing to the people who are on the other side of it. Because, it, because they say fatiguing. this, this right. doesn't happen and it hasn't happened. So why are we making such a big deal about it? So there's got to be a happy medium. And it can't always be based on the worst case scenario. It needs to be based on sound principles that are right and are going to last longer than whatever the flavor of the week is. So sure. for, yeah. for example, well, this is like, yeah, this is like not having a fad, though, right? Exactly. <laughs> you don't want to just jump into the latest thing, but you want to actually make lifestyle changes that have a sustainable impact That's on right. what keeps you safe or health or whatever. Yeah. So, for example, in that specific scenario, it could be we're going to stop eating sugar. And so you say anything that has added sugar is just not going to come into our house. We're not going to eat it. That is much more sustainable than, you know, doing one of those HCG diets where you give yourself injections of some sort of hormone and then, you know, you don't eat anything for three days. I mean, that kind of stuff that makes it really, really tough to sustain that over the long term. But when it comes yeah. to schools, for example, one of the things that, you know, the devious licks TikTok thing that was happening earlier in the year, a lot of principals were asking in the groups that I'm on online is how do we how do we deal with this so that kids don't do it anymore? And it really goes back to what is the culture of your school? 
if the culture of your school is that um, social media rules the day and we do whatever we see on social media, then that's what's going to happen. If the culture of your school is we respect our school because it helps us learn and we, we all take part in cleaning up our school every day, then you're not going to have those kinds of things happen nearly as much as a school that treats it as this is just a building that we happen to be in for part of the day and we don't care about it. It doesn't matter to us. I mean, these things all, the things we do and say have a greater impact on what's going on than, than we sometimes realize. I, I think that's a great, a great way to put it, Jethro. There are a couple of different points that emerge, I think, from that. Number one, in terms of the evidence-based approach, right? That's a key piece, right? So, you know, for your average school district, you know, they're not likely to be the target of a denial of service attack. I mean, that's a relatively sophisticated thing or an SQL injection attack. These are very sophisticated network attacks. So you probably don't want to spend money on or focus on those attacks. You want to focus on phishing. You want to focus on viruses, things that are well, like, you know, much more likely to occur. And I absolutely agree with you. You know, we have to, we have to balance these approaches. But the other thing you're underscoring, and we keep coming back to this, is the idea that we're dealing with school communities. And there needs to be a community culture that is committed to the concept of cyber safety, that it's not just the responsibility of some guy in a wire laden exactly. office. <laughs> you know, it's the responsibility of teachers, parents, kids. And I love that analogy to taking care of the school as part of a resource of the community, because that's exactly what we're getting, that yeah. we want to enhance and protect this institution hopefully is benefiting the community as a whole. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And if we take that holistic, we're all in this together approach, we're going to find mm -hmm. much more success with trying to prevent these things. And you know, much better conversations. Oh yeah. Um, as promised, we did not get to everything on this list. So definitely go check it out at <laughs> cybertraps.com. Look at the show notes, see all the suggestions because there's a lot of good stuff. And one thing uh, just as a last word is, don't conduct your own phishing attacks on your own people. Totally unethical, totally wrong. You're not going to build any bridges or get anybody on your side if you ever do that. So don't set your people up for failure by posing as the bad guy yourself. It's not going to work. Great piece of advice. And my last word on this is if you do not already have a relationship with your U.S. representative or your senatorial officer's Develop one now because they are absolutely the people who can help guide you on the grant application process. Probably want to reach out to your State Department of Education as well. Yep, very good. All right. Well, that wraps up this episode of the Cyber Traps podcast number 98. In the coming weeks, we will continue our coverage of emerging trends in a variety of areas, including digital misconduct. Obviously, cyber safety and cybersecurity, which we talk about frequently, uh, privacy, and the challenges of high-tech parenting. Along the way, we'll talk to a growing collection of international experts who are helping us to understand the risks and the rewards of digital technology. 
You can find the Cybertraps podcast on all your favorite podcast apps. We hope that you'll share the show with your friends and colleagues and reach out to us if you have questions, topic suggestions, or guest suggestions. If you'd like to follow us on Twitter, I'm at Jethro Jones and Fred is at Cybertraps. And if you're still listening, you must have loved this podcast. If so, please leave us a five-star rating and review in your podcast service of choice. We appreciate having you in our audience and look forward to having you join us for our next episode on Thursday. There are lots of solutions out there for giving students what they need when they need it. But when do they actually do all of those things? You need flexible time. When added into your master schedule, flex time enables students to get extra help or intervention, meet with teachers, make up work, get physical exercise, and try new enrichment offerings. If you're thinking of giving it a try, check out MyFlex Learning, which unlocks the benefits of flexible time without all the headaches you get with it usually. Its intuitive design and SIS integration makes implementation and training a breeze. Make your flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com BE. Do you want to save time on prep work, increase student achievement for all of your students, reliably meet tier one standards? You can do it all, but don't waste another minute. Head straight to IXL.com B to learn how IXL's research-proven teaching and learning platform can help you achieve these goals. That's IXL.com B-E.